Well, good evening. It's a pleasure to be able to have the opportunity to be able to open the Word together with you tonight. And so, uh, if you will take your Bibles with me, let's go to the book of Philippians together. And the book of Philippians chapter 4 is where we'll spend the majority of our time tonight. Philippians in chapter 4. There was much pressure placed on on me. I felt that by the last three messages that have been given, all of them have been from the book of Acts. So uh, I wondered if I should have been in Acts tonight. Uh, we will have some sort of relationship with Acts because we're in Philippians. And Philippians comes, as you heard this morning, the Philippian church uh, got its start from the book of Acts in chapter 16. And the charter members of that Philippian church were a suicidal jailer and a seller of purple and a demon-possessed slave girl. So what a wonderful start to that church. But it soon became the most endeared church to the part of the Apostle Paul that he would write this wonderful epistle to us. And uh, Philippians chapter 4 is where we'll be. But the entire book of Philippians is known as the epistle of joy. And uh, it's quite striking that it's such called that, given that it's penned from a prison cell, as it were. Paul, while in captivity, awaiting what he knows to be probably his sentence of death, which would mean that his ministry would soon end, writing from this place where he's most, you know, he's alone and uh, forgotten and in many ways uh, maybe out of the way of what he thought maybe God's will would be for his life. Yet in, that great, in this great epistle, we see the, the surging joy and the happiness and the blessedness of the Apostle Paul as he recounts how God has used him to continue to minister to those of the Caesar's household, how, how, how he's continued to have an ongoing ministry, although things have not panned out the way that maybe he would have perhaps thought they would. And so this is a great, this is a great thing. I, I think uh, for all intents and purposes, the book of Philippians is one of my favorite ber- uh, books for the purpose of the fact that it reminds me that in everything that we should rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And I, I, I think that is a major note in the book of Philippians. And uh, my hope is tonight to take some time with you and to strengthen you and encourage you and to cause, your, um, to cause you to be advantaged and benefited by this reminder of the Apostle Paul as he has a few closing words in chapter 4 for the precious saints of Philippi. And uh, since you're there, I'm going to read up to our text, which will just be one verse tonight. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8 will be the only text we'll look at tonight, Lord willing. And uh, with God's help, um, we'll have an opportunity to evaluate our thought processes, how we think about things, how we, what do we meditate on, what do we uh, allow our hearts to um, reminisce over, and what, 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 is the, what is the fodder of our mental activity while we are thinking about the problems of life and and such. So uh, I think it's really, really key for the Christian to be very discerning about what thoughts you're allowed to, you should entertain in your heart. Because the Bible does, remi- remember the Bible does say, for as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So we're very, very, very concerned about what thoughts go through our heart and mind. So that's where we'll end up. That's the major thrust of the message tonight. But let's go ahead and begin in Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to read in verse 1 all the way down to our text, which will be verse 8. All right, shall we begin? Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1, we'll read down to verse 8. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel and with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, 
whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Let's have a word of prayer, shall we, as we open up. Father, I thank you for the precious portion of Scripture before us. Lord, I believe what we are hearing tonight are the, the very syllables of the Almighty God. You're speaking directly to your people this evening, and I pray that our hearts will be open to receive the truth of these words. And not just to receive them, but to practice them and to obey them. And Lord, tonight I pray as um, we uh, fix our attention on this, I pray that uh, you'll give us ears to hear and a mind that will uh, be diligent and thinking and dwelling on these very things we're going to look at together tonight. And Lord, with your help tonight, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll count the hour well spent as we study the word together. Thank you for this church family. I thank you for each individual you brought here tonight. We do pray for our pastor and many of our fellow church members who are away tonight in Israel. And we pray for their safety and for their edification as they learn and they see many things that will embolden them in the faith. And Lord, we pray for their soon return and their safe return. And God, I pray that you'll help us now as we look at the word together tonight. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. The main purpose, I like to kind of put it right up on the front side because I know how some of us are. We fall asleep within five minutes. So I'm going to give you the sermon in a sentence. How about that? A sermon, the sermon in the sentence is basically this. God wants us to begin to filter our thoughts according to these these qualities we're going to read. He wants us to be thinking in our thoughts and to be eliminating thoughts that don't correspond or don't align with those things which Christians should be thinking about and meditating upon. Um, whether they are true, honorable, just, pure, holy, a lovely, commendable, or praiseworthy. We naturally, as human beings, the part of the human condition is that we have a problem. We have a problem with perception. We often look at things from a natural perspective, and as we evaluate the circumstances of our life, we begin to think that uh, things are different than the way God says that they are. And as, I, as we go forward tonight, I want to show you how relevant this passage is, how helpful it is to begin to evaluate the circumstances and problems and issues that you face in your life with the, the, these quality traits, these I'm going to call it a filter. It's a, it's a filter that helps you evaluate these circumstances of life so that you begin to see things from God's perspective, see things from God's uh, unique vantage point. Uh, and so unless we exercise diligent control over our own thoughts and reasonings, our own hearts will actually deceive us. They'll, we'll actually delude ourselves into thinking that we know what is right and what is true. And the only way we can, uh, we can uh, end run that or pre- pre- prevent that from happening is by constantly bending our hearts and our minds into the shape, into the pattern of God's thoughts and God's will and God's purposes as we read in the scriptures. And that is a discipline that we need to practice on a regular basis. Paul exhorts the Philippians here to dwell on thoughts that conform to God's truth. And I'm going to suggest that what God says is true is what is really real. What God says is true is really real. And, and that's important because we often think that what we, what we think is real, what we experience, what we feel is real, and that's not true. What God says is real. The, book, the Word of God is reality. It's truth. Not what you think you feel or what you think you understand about things. And that's why it's so important as Christians that we take for, we, we often take it for granted, the Word of God is not just a nice, wonderful book of pious platitudes to pattern your life after. It is the authority of, for faith and practice for every believer. And that means that it should shape our thoughts. It should shape our perspectives on how we look at things in life. Maybe you've heard the uh, statement, perception is reality. Have anyone ever heard that? Well, perception is reality, and it's almost given that that's uh, expected, that we should just accept that as an axiomatic truth that everyone receives without any criticism or any careful thought. But perception is not reality, unless we're speaking of God's perception. What God says is true, that is what's real. And what someone might perceive is is an issue, people might have a perception problem when it comes to their own identity. And someone might consider, a man might consider himself to be a woman. Well, we could say perception is reality, but that would be completely wrong and at odds with Scripture, wouldn't it? Perception is not reality. 
God's truth is reality, and that's how we have to constantly uh, we, we constantly have to uh, reconcile with that standard and reconcile with that um, that truth. That's why we're going to be called upon in this passage to be thinking thoughts that are God's thoughts. That's why we preach expositorily because we want to think God's thoughts after Him. We want our thoughts to mirror God's own thoughts, and in doing so, our minds are shaped after the uh, after the pattern of God. We become more godly in our life. We become more godly in our practice. Um, we begin to love the things God loves and, and to hate the things God hates and to desire the things God desires. So, um, as we get into this tonight, let me give you that sermon in a sentence I told you I would do. Here it is. I don't know if it's up there on, the, on there or not. One more. Here it is. Christians, we need to always painstakingly and relentlessly strive to bend our habits of thinking and feeling and speaking about our problems to fit what God says or God's perception. Um, Our first concern is not how do I feel about something? How do I feel about this issue? How do I feel about my marriage? How do I feel about finances? How do I feel about the struggles I face at work? Or how do I feel about this relationship that's in trouble? It's not the first question we ask. The first question is, how does God want me to think about this? How does God want me to respond? How do I obey God? How do I please God in this matter, in this, in, in this situation? What does God say is true about my own heart in this situation? What is God's perspective in this? What does God say his immutable disposition is towards the circumstances and meditations of my heart? So, we want to begin with that kind of in our hearts as we begin to look through this and study this passage a little closer. Um, There are common ways for Christians today to speak of the decisions they make. Oftentimes they'll just say, follow your heart. They'll say, perception is reality. They'll say, I've got a gut feeling. I'm just going to go with it. A lot of people operate their Christian life like that and end up in devastating trouble. And so what we need to make sure is what we're doing is we're not leading life off by what we, by the temperature, a measurement of the temperature of our own hearts, but rather we're fixed, we're fixated on the word and the principles found therein so that we can begin to see our way forward in obedience to God. Now, God has a word to say about every circumstance of life. We believe that, right? Second Peter 1, 3 says, all things have been given to us for life and for godliness. We believe the sufficiency of God's word. Amen. And so I figured you'd say amen. Uh, we say it with our lips. We say it with our, our mouths all the time. But do we practice that? When there's a decision to be made, God has a word to speak on that matter. We ought to be finding that, uh, finding principles that, that affect how we decide and how we um, navigate the, 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 the turns of life. Um, the way of think, um, pardon me, ultimately... If we lead life by what we feel only, this actually ends up causing us to become held hostage by our own thinking and our own thoughts, rather than being free to live an obedient life before God. We should take our cue from Scripture for how we think or feel about a situation. Typically, we react just simply by how we have a feeling about something. And that's where we go astray. Whenever we allow ourselves... I think it's on the next one. Whenever we allow ourselves uh, to be enslaved by our own thoughts, emotions, and desires, we have given up reality. We are literally given up reality. We're given up what God, what God says about what is true. And we live in a way that we think is right or a way that we think is true or how we feel should be done. We've actually left off reality. We live in something of an alternate reality that we have created, a world that is designed around what we think should be. A self-determined standard of what uh, should be right and referencing all of life around that standard. Ultimately, this leads us to be captive in our own thoughts and emotions. On almost every issue I've ever faced, trying to help somebody with the word in ministry or otherwise, whether it's counseling or pastoring or whatever it might be, it almost always comes back to an issue of someone's improper thinking about the the problem that they're in. Whether it's a, a marriage that's starting to fail. Or a teenager who's rebellious in the home and uh, has an attitude towards his or her parents that is, that is destructive in that home. Whether it might be, it sources back to a problem with the thinking process of that individual. Someone be able to think rightly about that relationship according to how God determines that should be thought. 
And so uh, you see that this is a very um, relevant, very important, very central and key um, matter when it comes to uh, the Christian life. Instead, if, we, uh, if you could hold your place here for a moment and you could go and peek at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 for me. I'm going to suggest to you tonight, I believe that God is extremely interested in our thought life. Extremely interested. Uh, what we think is a much larger share of our Christian life than probably we would really want to admit. Um, what you think about becomes um, the basis for decisions that you make, actions that are taken, things that you, um, whether obedience or disobedience is, is performed. It all goes back to whether you thought first correctly about the matter. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 4 through 5, we see that there's, a, there's kind of like this ethic given to us from the scriptures, this important principle. Um, I'm going to begin just in verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ who am in the presence, who in presence am lowly among you and being absent am bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold that with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Now, what are these strongholds that are spoken of here? What's what are they? Well, they're going to be fully explained in the next verse, right? The strongholds. What are they? They are arguments, reasonings, literally, ideas, thoughts, if it were, as it were. Uh, so they are the casting down of arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your disobedience is fulfilled. So here's Paul saying we need to be ready to take every thought captive, to hold hostage thoughts that occur to us and hold them as it were at sword point by the word of God until they, they yield or they, they don't yield to the word of God, until they yield to obedience or not. So when we think about things, we need to be very careful that we don't just entertain thoughts indiscriminately, but that they have some biblical basis or they have some... Uh, founding in scripture and that presupposes that we know our bibles now if you're like me and i'm sure everyone in here is it's a important practice to be always gleaning from the scriptures always developing your understanding of scriptures that's your life that's important uh without that you will not have any hope of success in the christian life so always be reaping from the scriptures always be mindful of being in it if you're not in it you'll never benefit from it so, the word of Christ is the disclosure of Christ's own mind. When we get to the book of Philippians, I'm going to have you go back there again, uh, just to kind of set you up for the context of this. Philippians is a wonderful epistle, and one of the central teachings of the book of Philippians is the mind of Christ. When we talk about the mind of Christ, what are we, what are we referencing? What are we talking about here? Well, I think uh, you'll see this, this idea of the mind of Christ is mentioned again and again throughout the book. And in the first chapter of Philippians, we see the mind of Christ is given, uh, I call it the single mind. This is just my title for it. But you'll see that Paul, in, in trying to explain this, shows a very fixated, uh, uh, a single-hearted focus, a mind that is not distracted, a mind that is not uh, off-target, but it has a single goal in mind. And that goal is, as we read in Philippians chapter 1, verses 21, for me to live is Christ. All right? The purpose behind why I exist, the purpose for why I live and breathe and why I get up in the morning is to pursue and to magnify and to proclaim Christ. That's why you're saved, believer. That's why you're not this moment sitting in heaven and you've been left here on earth. Because you live to proclaim Christ. That should be your mission. It should be your purpose. Whether uh, you're a minister of the gospel or not, whether you're uh, a school teacher or uh, a, sanita a sanitation engineer or a garbage truck driver or whatever it might be, you're proclaiming Christ. Whether that's by your life uh, or through your testimony uh, or however it might be, Christ consumes you. He is your life. Your life is now hid with Christ in God. As the scripture says, I love that picture. 
uh, your life is, to, is wrapped up in the summation of Jesus Christ. And if you die, that is nothing more than gain to you. It's only gain. And so we see that single mind in chapter 1. He also kind of uh, exhorts the, the, the church in chapter 1 with that single mind in verse 27. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind. One mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in no way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you a salvation. And that from God. So the one mind, he says, that you church should be striving together. Not striving with each other, striving together toward, with one mind, one spirit in the faith of the gospel. To advance the faith. And that, that is the single mind. So that's the mind of Christ. It's a unifying, single-hearted focus. On Christ's mission. That's one of the things we see revealed about the mind of Christ. The second thing I see in chapter 2, as we read this wonderful kenosis passage, the, the passage of a beautiful Christological passage talking about Christ's self-emptying. As he came to this earth, he laid aside his, his, the free exercise of his own prerogatives and of glory and, and the prerogatives of divinity. He set that aside and took upon him the humble form of a servant as a man. Humanity. And died the death of a criminal so that later God would highly exalt him and that he would redeem and that he would be the one who is exalted and worshipped as Lord of Lords. And so we see this one Jesus set forth as one who is submitted, the submitted mind, as it were. Someone who submits himself ultimately for the needs of others. And he holds this example forth. To the Philippian church and said, this is, this is the mind of Christ, that you would not be puffed up, that you not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, that you would not cling so greatly to your rights or to, your, to what you feel you're entitled to, but instead that you'd lay that down and be submitted for your brethren, for the church, for each other, for the needs of others. Count them more greatly than your own. And that's a submitted mind. Now when he gets to chapter 3, I must move quickly here. Chapter 3, we see what I, I call the steadfast mind. Chapter 3 and verse 15. Paul recounts his testimony briefly. He lists a long list of spiritual accomplishments. Kind of a resume of sorts, as it were. You know, um, Hebrew of the Hebrews. Uh, Pharisee. Um, concerning the law, blameless. I mean... He had it going on, right? He had everything that you would expect to have uh, for a religious, moral man. And if it were to be determined that someone could enter heaven by meritorious deeds or good things, Paul probably would have been on that list. But at the end of the accounting of all things, verse 9, he says, he says that I've counted all these things nothing but rubbish. They're, it's dung. It's, 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 it's debt to me. It's debt and he says, instead, I'd rather, he says that, the, that I'd rather have find the righteousness of Christ in him. That's the righteousness that is uh, uh, of God in Christ Jesus. That is the righteousness that is acceptable and that is through faith. And so that I may know him, verse 10, in the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering, be made conformable to his death. And so I say the steadfast mind, because look what happens. He speaks of the pressing forward, the pressing on in the Christian life. He says, not that I've already attained, verse 12, or I'm already perfect, or perfected, pardon me, but I press on that I may lay hold for that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. I love that image. I want to lay hold of that for which I've been laid hold of. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to, forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So we see the persevering, steadfast mind that continues to reach out after that which God has called him for. That is, he's, he's being, called, he's being uh, steadfast to pursue that calling for which God has placed on him. To be the witness that he was called to be, to, 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 to reach out for his... Uh, uh, for this calling is an amazing thing. So we see that steadfast mind. Now, lastly, as we get to chapter 4, we see a satisfied mind. 
a satisfied mind. And this is where we want to part tonight, chapter 4. Satisfied mind. And when I mean satisfied, I, I mean the, uh, behind that. I mean that you see Paul's settledness, his satisfaction, his contentedness with the condition he finds himself in, even while he's in prison. Even while the circumstances of his life are not comfortable, this is not conducive to having great freedom in ministry. I mean, he's, he's under house arrest. He's, he's probably not ever going to see his home again. He may never see the faces of the churches, of the church people who he dearly loves. This is maybe the final chapter of his life. And yet you see a settledness, a satisfaction, a contentedness. And, it, and this is evident through his, his joyous, rejoicing spirit. You see, you see it, and you see it uh, uh, spoken at the end of the chapter 4 when he says, I know how to be abased, I know how to abound, I know in all things and everywhere in all things um, uh, how, to, uh, how, to, uh, how to continue to minister. I was going to read that verse. I think it's in verse, uh, um, verse uh, 14. No, that's not it. I looked for I think I missed it here. Um, Everywhere in all things. Yes, verse 12. I'm sorry. I know how to be abased. I know how to be abound. How to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. And that is the context where we find the great verse, I can do all things through Christ. This isn't a verse that just gets thrown onto some t-shirt somewhere and worn around without context. This has a context. He's saying, I can do all things in Christ because wherever God places me, he enables me. He gives me grace. You can see it as he's, as he's speaking of this condition he's in, that he has the strength to endure the trial that he's in at the moment. The trial that he undergoes for the testimony of his faith. Ultimately, he'll stand probably before one of the world's most notorious evil rulers and stand to give an account of his actions and have opportunity to declare the gospel to the emperor himself. Before, he's sentenced to death. And he says, I can do it. I can do it all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's satisfied in that he is, he's, this is a stabilized heart. I mean, you hear the stabilized heart of this man. And I would say that if you and I were in the situation Paul would be, we would be a basket case. We would. I mean, many of us would. How would you like to know that any day could be your last, any moment? You could be summoned to call before the court of, of the emperor, sentenced to death uh, at any moment. Uh, I mean, this is, uh, this, is, this is intense. I mean, this man has endured beatings and uh, floggings and shipwreck and stonings and all kinds of tremendous traumatic behavior. This man should be a mental basket case right now. Puffing into a paper bag, trying to not, try not to have a panic attack. You know, this guy should be just absolutely unusable according to God's standards in ministry. And yet, when you read this, the, the, oh, the, the tenor of this passage is just breathtaking. He is satisfied. He's contented. He's joyous. He's firm. He's resolute. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. That's the mind of Christ. And he says to those who would be anxious on his behalf, those Philippian believers who are over in Philippi looking at this situation and wondering, I hope Paul's going to be okay. I really hope that, uh, you know, what's going to happen to our precious friend, Apostle Paul? And perhaps there a lot of over-concern, you know, there a lot of concern, a lot of anxiety, and a lot of worry has crept in and has become so debilitating. Paul feels uh, inclined to speak to that problem by telling them, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. That's a man who's speaking those words from experience. Someone who's spoken about what it means to be in anxious situations, stressful times, and has found the prayer of God alleviate, prayer to God alleviates that heaviness, that, that worry, anxious heart. And then he goes on to give more instruction about what a Christian's thought life should be. Now, I don't know where we are. Let me catch up on this real quick. I don't think I, I think I've lost it there, Tim. We won't, we won't use the screen tonight then, I guess. Um, now, Paul gives us some instruction on the thought life of the Christian. Now, Paul is not focused, and I think one of the most important things to notice here, when Paul starts to talk about our thoughts in verse 8, finally, brethren, finally, he's not talking about um, 
someone's he's not focusing on changing the external circumstances he finds himself in that are causing the anxious thoughts. He's not saying, believer, when you find yourself in a trial or in anxious times or in difficult times, you should pray to God to change your circumstances. He's not suggesting that in this passage. Instead, he's basically uh, writing a prescription to the people. He's saying you need to change your thinking about the circumstances of your situation. That is where deliverance will come from. That's where, that's where your, your captivity will be turned if you think differently about the circumstances and if you perceive your problem differently according to the uh, way that we ought to perceive them. And so instead of wording ourselves by things we cannot change, we should embrace the things we cannot change and instead adapt and adopt our thinking to what God says should be our thinking about a situation. We want those, the satisfied mind, the steadfast mind, the single mind, the submitted mind of Christ. It's a matter of mind control, uh, controlling how we think. Now, there's three basic categories I, I, I think of when I think of people who it comes to thinking or feeling or doing. There are the people who will feel first, and that feeling, whatever it might be, whether it's... Uh, whether it's, let's take, for instance, someone who uh, has fallen in love with someone and that feeling has driven them now to do something about that and they pursue and passion someone kind of in a, um, I would put it this way, kind of like in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that's not thoughtful at all. They're just pursuing because they're in, in, engulfed in passion and, and pursuit. Their feelings are really driving this behavior. They marry this person without having given proper consideration scripturally to that and end up in a marriage that ultimately when the emotion and the passion eventually stabilize and they settle, maybe even fall off, they end up in a marriage that is unhappy and uh, un, uh, it's, it's, not grow, it's not united in Christ. It's just was not born out of a thoughtful perspective. Those are the people I call the feelers, people who feel, feel first, do second, and then think last. A lot of us are prone to do that kind of behavior in our life. We feel first, then do, then we act. Or then we, then we think about it maybe later. If we're forced to, we'll think about it in reflection. Then you have the people who, I think these are a lot of these are teenagers. They do first, then they think, or they do first, then they feel, and then they think maybe later on. Uh, they do it, they're motivated because they want to experience it. They just want to experience it. They're not thinking clearly. They just, in a rash act of, of excitement, they just burst into there with all the enthusiasm of the world and they just do what they want to do first. And then they feel later and then they will later think about it. And I want to suggest to you that the scripture pattern should be completely flipped around so that we would think first, then that would, that would motivate us to obedience, to feel or to, to do, and then our, later the feelings would come afterwards as the joyous result of obedience. You know, we don't lead our lives by feelings, but feelings are an accompanying result to an act of obedience. When you obey God, there is a joy. There's a joy there. There's a satisfaction. There's a, um, a, a happiness that really truly results. And so we need to make sure we keep that, in, that sequence in order here. So, controlling our own mind. What are some things? There's some tests here I would give you, maybe eight quick tests. As we're just going to walk through these eight quick um, um, qualities, we'll put them that way. Whatsoever things are true. Whatsoever things are true. The first test we must give our worries or give our problems or give whatever it is that we're going through must be the test of whether it, whether it satisfies the quality of truth. How many of you have ever found yourself worrying about things that just never happen? That's like 99% of the, way, of the things I worry about. I worry and I fret and I get anxious about things that ultimately never happen. And I spend a lot of mental energy and a lot of wasted time thinking about things that never happen because I wasn't testing my thoughts as to whether they were true or not, whether they correspond to what God says is true or right. Is the thing which is causing us such anguish and fear and dread in our hearts something that is actually legitimate, something that's genuine and real, not something that I have imagined in a what-if scenario, or what if that happens, or what if that happens, or this or that, and find myself completely encompassed and engrossed in, in worry and concern, not giving any thought to whether or not it satisfies whether it's true or not, speculating, hypothesizing, embe- embellishing or exaggerating events, 
so that I'm not even dealing in truth anymore. I'm, I'm in a delusive state, just thinking about things that could possibly happen that in God's will and sovereign plan likely will never happen. So, my friend, one of the things we need to begin to ask ourselves from the beginning is, is this true? What, I'm, what is gripping my heart tonight? What is concerning such great, uh, uh, such great uh, stress in my heart and my mind? Is it really true? Or is this something that I am just imagining and my thoughts are getting racing and out of control? I need to control my mind, assume, uh, hold those thoughts hostage and bring them into captivity and to the obedience of Christ. And Lord, show me what is true here. Let me not worry about things that don't have any basis in fact or reality, but instead to be thinking about what is true. Second of all, what are whatsoever things are honorable? Honorable here. The word is semna in the Greek. And it has the idea of whatever is dignified, venerable, or honorable. And as I thought about this and tried to uh, and meditate on this a little bit and looked at this somewhat, um, I, I began to see how in my own life, how sometimes the thoughts I have towards a circumstance, whether it's a troubled relationship in my life, uh, something that maybe I have a, a relationship that's not, uh, that is kind of, there's some, there's some tension there. I'll look at that situation and I have less than honorable motives when I look at that. Sometimes I think about past hurts that have happened or some, some past things that have taken place in that relationship. And then I bring all of those past hurts and injuries into this now, this circumstance. And I begin to look at that person and begin to evaluate the motives for that person, why they did this or why they did that. And now I'm polluted by a less than honorable motive as I look at those things. And that's polluting my thought processes. So when we look at the scriptures, what we need to be careful we don't do is that we, we, we need to make sure our thoughts pass the honest test or the honorable test. That is to say, we don't expect or assume the worst of everything of, of someone's motives or someone's activities because, uh, or have an attitude of suspicion or mistrust or, or skepticism over a situation. But rather, we need to be careful when we approach that, that our heart is clean of any of those things. Instead, we are approaching it with an honorable motive. Our thoughts are honorable, are honest. All right? So we have truth. Does our thoughts pass the truth test? Are we dealing with things that are realities, not just imaginations or things that we've conjectured might take place? Are we honorable when we approach these situations so that we're not polluting our thought processes with impure or dishonorable um, assumptions? Thirdly, whatsoever things are just. Uh, right might be a translation you see in your scriptures. And this is a forensic term coming right out of the court systems of the day. As if uh, when a judge would declare on a case, he would make a verdict that would be just. That would be have then the patient and impartial and objective deliberation over what evidence was available. And making a determination based on facts. Not on you don't want the judge up there making a decision on his feelings, right? You don't want him just saying, you know, wet a finger, stick it in the air and figure out which way the winds are blowing in the society and trying to make a decision based on that. You want his, his liberation to be based on truth and facts and, and what available evidence is there. And yet so many of us, our thoughts quickly jump to conclusions, don't we? We kind of over, we pass over what what. Clear evidences are there for whatever, maybe it's a relationship we're struggling with, like I mentioned, or financial situation, something that's got us worried. And we begin to jump to conclusions without passing a just sentence, a, a sentence of, of rightness. Um, so we need to be careful about that. We need to be careful about that. If we are incorrect in our thinking, we will reach wrong conclusions. So this test implies that knowing the difference between right and what is not. Many times our worries are caused unnecessarily because we are misinformed or we jump to conclusions. How many have ever done that? You don't have to raise your hand. I'll raise it for you. I've done that myself. Thought I knew what was right. Assumed too much and found myself to be very horribly embarrassed at the end when it turned out to not be so. That is... The problem I had with that was I did not pass the just test when I thought of those things. So be careful about that. Number four, whatsoever things are pure. Whatsoever things are pure. I love this one. Now, it'd be very easy to segue into a a long discussion about what is purity in your thoughts. 
and be very quick to go to the area of immorality and sexual immorality in our hearts and our minds and things that we entertain in our minds and, and talk about Christ's admonition to uh, be, uh, be careful to guard our minds, that uh, if we look with lust, we've committed that, as it were, already in our hearts and, and take that extremely seriously. And that would not be a bad application of this verse. But that's not necessarily what the context of this is. Remember, he's talking about fretting and worry and, and having that angst in your heart about what could be. And he, instead, I think he's talking about this idea of making sure your heart is pure, that you haven't superimposed some unclean thing upon uh, the situation, uh, upon any decision you must make. Uh, any defect in your heart oftentimes gets superimposed or projected upon a situation. Um, it's precisely at this point that we must have, uh, uh, pardon me, it says, however, this is not uh, the interpretation of the phrase, that is the sexual morality idea. The immediate context is not dealing with lust, but worry. While it is true that we must maintain purity of thought so that we are not tempted to lust, the thrust of this verse is applied to the subject of concern and anxiety so that how do we apply this pure test is important. The idea of purity suggests that we are not to... Um, we are to screen our thoughts by see if it's tainted with anger or bitterness or criticism or suspicion or self-serving motives. These things are impurities that will affect your judgment, your ability to think about things rightly or wrongly. So make sure, be careful to really do some analysis and self, self, self-evaluate here. Am I thinking this way because there's some defect or darkness in my own heart, sin in my own heart that's prohibiting me from viewing the situation correctly? Um, I had, an, uh, for an example, um, I, I actually don't have time for the example, so we're going to move past that for a minute. I'll get you the example after the service if you want to come see. Um, but yes. All right, number five. Whatsoever things are lovely. Whatsoever things are lovely. Now, you remember a verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? That love thinks no evil, right? Love thinks no evil. The fifth test is the lovely test, and we're commanded to think on these things, to dwell on the lovely things. Uh, and that is, the, the, the word here has a, carries with it the, con- uh, the connotation of being pleasing or agreeable or amiable. And the idea here is to suggest that anxiety often is accompanied with unloving thoughts. Unloving thoughts are generally negative, skeptical, or cynical. And if we are to remedy our anxiety and worry with lovely thoughts, we should do well to that one of the characteristics of our love should be that it thinks no evil. So taking concern with that, are we expressing love towards someone in thinking harshly about them or thinking that they are up to no good or perhaps we have suspicions already there? And I think we need to be careful about uh, projecting that onto a situation. That uh, love would teach us instead to think no evil and to have not that beginning presumption going in. Number six, whatsoever things are of good report... Um, here in the um, New King James, I think it says, whatsoever things, oh, it does say good report here. I think I read another passage that said reputable. Another, another version says reputable. And what that means is that we don't just take some unnamed, unknown person's word for things. How many of us have been drawn into a situation where there's a rumor that was passed around at the expense of some poor soul? Their name's getting tossed around and kicked through the mud, and, and we hear about that, and we make an evaluation, and we, cause our, we think about that, we ruminate on it, and then we make a, we, our hearts get all polluted by that because it doesn't pass the reputable test. It's not based on good reputation. It's not based on good, um, good uh, well-founded uh, sources. There are many people who would love to take your name and kick it through the mud and and destroy your reputation. We need to be careful about just... Our ears are not garbage cans. Don't fill them full of garbage, right? Uh, make sure that we don't uh, do that. So when you think about things, make sure that we're not just assuming, taking everything as gospel truth, without having seriously considered whether this report is well-founded or not. Uh, this might be, there might be a, some allusion to this in Paul's case, because remember, Paul, there's a man named Epaphroditus here in the passage. Epaphroditus has been sent by Philip, the church at Philippi to go minister to Paul while he's in prison. And while Epaphroditus went, he also took with him a large sum of cash, uh, presumably to help minister to Paul while he's in bonds. And yet, while Epaphroditus was with Paul, he took sick. 
Is that a is that can I say that? Took sick? Is that a proper English? He took sick. He took ill. He got got sick. Okay. And uh, when he did, he was prevented from returning back to the Philippian church. And that caused a little bit of a concern. Here's Epaphroditus. He hasn't shown up. He took off with a bunch of money and we haven't seen him. Uh Uh-oh. Surely that would be really fertile ground for some rumors to take place. And a lot of anxiousness, a lot of concerns, a lot of worry took place. I think Paul, um, in fact, when he writes about Epaphroditus back in chapter uh, 2, he's very glowing in his commendation of this faithful servant. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's overdone almost in the passage in order to, um, to redeem the reputation of, of Epaphroditus, who might have been actually coming under some rumors there in that, in that church. And so Paul's saying, listen, be careful when you're thinking that you're not thinking things that are not of good report. Make sure you have well-founded um, reasons and, and, and good sources by which to evaluate things. Don't just allow your mind to entertain um, rumors and things such as that. Number seven, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise. I'm going to take these two together. If there be any virtue and any praise. I love this word arete in the Greek. Um, it means moral excellence. So if there's anything that you are ruminating on, the things that you're dwelling on, the things that you're thinking about that do not promote in your Christian walk a, a, a surging courage to walk, to walk with the Lord and to advance in sanctification, to pursue the things of God, but rather would be things that you'd dwell upon that would inhibit that or hold you back or paralyze you from doing things for Jesus Christ, get rid of those things. Instead, dwell on the things that embolden you for Jesus Christ. That's moral excellence is the idea here of things that would be uh, to get rid of things that would be preoccupying you from having an interest in in living a life that's becoming of what a Christian ought to be. If there be any virtue, think on those things. So with with one test here, he's eliminated a vast amount of things that can often occupy a serious amount of our mind, uh, of our energy and our time. And then lastly, if there be any praise, if there be any praise. The final test of what we ought to think about is the praiseworthy test. So we are to admonish our to we are admonished to occupy our minds with things that are worthy of praise. Now, how many times do we go through things that we would rather curse than praise? I was driving in down Timberlake Road yesterday, and uh, boy, just to be completely transparent with you. Uh, I was not in a praise. It was not praiseworthy time in my mind and heart, and I'm not happy about that. I'm not. I'm not happy to report that to you. Just saying that we all live in that area where we engage in things and thoughts that are not praiseworthy, and uh, rather we need to take those kinds of things, those kind of moments, and realize that that's a test. That's a. This is a. This is an opportunity to exploit the truths of this verse and employ them in that situation to say, Lord, what can I find time to praise you for in this moment? What can I find something to praise you about? Hey, I am in a car. You know, a large portion of the world's population has no car. They have no transportation. And here I'm driving in a car. Thank you, God, for this car. I mean, it's something as simple as that. But yet you find things to praise the Lord for. I think that's Paul's key to why he's survived to this point with such a joyous note in the book of Philippians. He's found areas to praise God for, even in his trial and his difficulty. And if that's the pattern he sets for us, then we ought to seek to travel, we to seek to practice that ourselves. In fact, that's the next verse in Philippians 4, 9. He says, uh, the things, the things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Do you desire the peace of God to descend in your heart, in your mind, in your thoughts? Do you want that stable, settled, satisfied peace of God in your hearts? It comes by first practicing this filtering of your thinking so that you don't think and think your own thoughts, but instead you're bending your thoughts in your heart to, to, to calibrate with Christ's thoughts in his heart you're thinking about the things that are true things that are honorable things that are just pure lovely that are um, of a good report things that are virtuous and praiseworthy these are the things that are consuming your heart and your mind and the settled peace of god results as a uh, results in that so as we conclude this i i think that uh, it'd be helpful just to think about how is it that we can immediately begin to apply these things. My friend, I would encourage you to take some time this week 
Philippians 4.8 is not a lot of words, not a lot of not a, a long verse by any means. But if you would memorize this verse this week and try to find ways to practice each of these eight these eight qualities and use them as a filter as you think about what you uh, and evaluate what you think about. What do you spend the majority of your time thinking about? Is it true? Is it honorable? Is it just? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it of good report? Virtuous or praiseworthy? If it is, praise God. Continue to nourish on those things. But if not, take and get rid of those things. Eliminate them. And you'll find the peace of God settle and descend on your heart and your life as if never, as in never, as you never before have experienced. Think upon these things. Dwell on these things. And I think the Lord will find it'd be great a great glorifying thing to him in your life for you to do that. So my admonition to you tonight as a Christian, I've spoken all to Christians tonight. If you have the Jesus Christ in your heart and the grace of God is operating in your heart, you can do these things. You can practice them. And you can be successful in practicing them. But if you're here tonight without the hope of Christ, without having a relationship with Jesus Christ, a saving relationship whereby Jesus has died on the cross for you, you trust him as your savior, your sins are forgiven, and you've been restored into fellowship with the Father, if you don't have that, you will not be able to successfully practice this. So I encourage you tonight, if you've never before known what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, tonight you need to trust him as your savior. You need to repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and trust Christ, believing upon him, and he will receive you. And you'll receive him. For as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And you should believe on him immediately. Believe on him as, uh, tonight. Don't hesitate. Don't put off. Don't uh, wait another day. But give serious consideration to this. And think greatly upon this. Christ's sacrifice on the cross paid the debt of all of our sin. If you but believe upon him and trust him as your Savior, you can have the hope of heaven in a relationship with God the Father tonight. So I pray that you'll do that if you haven't yet done it. If you need some help with that, find a pastor or a Christian friend who can take you through, uh, through that, explain that to you a little more fully. And uh, perhaps you tonight will come to know Christ and be born again into the family of God. And that would be a great treasure and delight and a cause of great rejoicing in the church tonight. So I pray that you'll do that if you haven't done so already. Christian, let's be serious about this. Let's take this into hand and practice this truth and obey it and find the joyous results of what it means to practice a thought life that mirrors what God's truth is, God's thoughts, and practicing them in our hearts and lives.